Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Salutations, Cliff. To you as well, sir. How are you doing today? A little beat up, but getting there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I'm pretty good. Um, I want to let everybody know that this is, if, if everything goes right, this is my birthday month, If as you know. So November 28th is my birthday. Feel free to flood our email with happy birthday wishes. <laughs> I got to change my wish list for Christmas, or birthday presents from now on. Yeah? Why? Because you just inspired me. I know. You know. We have an audience now. Who knows what uh, kindness lurks out there? <laughs> yes, I just got back uh, yesterday from filming four days up in Oregon. We got so lucky. It was supposed to be raining a lot. It rained the first night. Then we got uh, two days and nights of killer weather, just beautiful. And, and when can people see this project you've been working on for so long? Any ideas when it might be released? Uh, we're getting close to the end of filming we got to do some recreations, so we're working on that right now, getting that set up. And then when that's done, the final edit and all that stuff will be pretty quick. So it should be, we were hoping by Christmas, but that might not be happening now. It might be like January. Oh, gosh. Christmas is like weeks away at this point. We actually had a Squatch sighting coming back from the film location. I was two cars behind and, and several minutes behind, but... One of the people in our group had uh, two run across the road right in front of him for his first sighting ever. Wow. And, and did, did you guys take advantage of that and film something with it? Or is it just uh, yeah, something we, that. Yeah, it'll be like in the probably bonus footage or something, you know, like rap, you know, at the end. Oh, that's cool. So it's not, it'd be unlike that Black Panther sighting that uh, I had with the, uh, on the Finding Bigfoot episode where it just kind of went unnoticed. Nobody cared. That was it. So. Yeah, we was like, well, we were done. We were out filming for that part of the movie, but it was like, we got to take advantage of this and plug it in at the end or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. People get excited about that stuff. Something else, uh, it, it is uh, coming up on Christmas, as we were mentioning. And you know what would be a fantastic gift to give somebody, Bobo? Just a I fantastic know. gift. I know. Would it, would, yes? Do I see a hand in the back? Yeah. What do you, what do you want to say, Bobs? Finding Bigfoot t-shirts. Nope. How about a Bigfoot and Beyond t-shirt? Oh God! What was I? Uh, I was, I was looking at those squiggly lines for our our voice uh, registry on the graph, and I got distracted. Oh, not not, not the squiggly lines that stand for letters and sounds. No. Yeah, yeah, that. <laughs> no, Bigfoot and Beyond T-shirts would be a fantastic gift for anyone you love. Because what better way to show them that you love them than to help us brand our podcast? There's no bigger sign of love out there in the whole universe. 
There really isn't. It's, I'm kind of surprised the human, uh, you know, species has made it this far without some sort of expression of love. Because the podcast hasn't only been around for a couple of years, but how do we make it to here without this podcast as an expression of our love for one another? Hmm. I'm baffled as well. But yeah, if you want a, if you want a Bigfoot and Beyond t-shirt, feel free to go to sasquatchprints.com. Our good friend Brandon Tennant makes it uh, makes these shirts on demand. So just go ahead and uh, and think, you know what? It, I've been hearing rumors that there may be a new design coming too. So go check out the website. We're taping this a week or two early, earlier than it's going to be released. So maybe that uh, new design is out by now. I don't know. But check out some Bigfoot and Beyond merchandise at sasquatchprints.com. And there you go. Is that all the business that we have? Oh, I've got another thing, oh, business. It's not too early to start planning for the last week in January up in Kelso Longview. Uh, Squatch Fest is going to be back at their regularly scheduled time. Um, this past year was in July because of COVID and all that stuff, but they're going to try it out again at the end of January up in Kelso Longview, a really fantastic event. Um, thousands of people walk through the door there, tons of vendors, great speakers, uh, and I'm, I'm also on the speaker list. Uh, but besides me, it's a great speaker list. And uh, it's it's always a good time. So and an adjoining week, beer hall, yeah, and an adjoining beer hall. You get like beer tokens. Um, I, I can't verify this a hundred percent for sure. I know I'm there. I know I'm there. But I think Meldrum's going to be there as well. And beyond that, I don't know who else they have scheduled. But it should be a great event. Um, it always has been so far, like, and they're batting a thousand so far. So I don't see why this year would be any different whatsoever. And really, what else are you doing at the at, you know at the end of January? Yeah, it's a great time of year for this sort of thing because too like all these festivals and conferences they're always in the summertime and you know at some point you I get burn out you go to three or four of these things maybe you don't want to go to another one but January why not go then it's fantastic it was a, that was a great venue great crowd great organizer great organizers the organization that put it on was all together and yeah I really really enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah, well, it's coming back. It's coming back at the end of January, last weekend. I forget the numbers, but you know everybody's got a calendar. You can look. The last weekend in January, um, Squatch Fest up in Longview and Kelso in Washington. So, come check it out. Come say hello. Yeah, we got some uh, Q and A coming up. People, the crowd favorite question and answers. Uh, ask yes. us anything you wish. We can mansplain things to each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't limit it just to Bigfoot stuff. If you want love advice, financial advice, anything like that, we can help out. That whatever you want, any questions? Oh my god, that'd be that would be great. You know, what we should do is we should get a moneymaker on one of these too. <laughs> oh, and ask sure. us anything and an AMA with moneymaker, you and me. Oh, that'd be so good. That would be fantastic. All right, so Bobo, do you want to shoot the first question, or do you want me to take the first question? Okay, I got one right here. I'm ready. Okay, hit it. Question. This is from Rick Minter. The CGI animations which depict some of the witness reports on finding Bigfoot play an important part in my mind, but are rarely spoken of. Can you tell me tell us more about these segments? How were they chosen? How were they created? What budget did they take up? And what did you guys think of them? They didn't really go too much to the store. They're usually just kind of the same ones over and over, weren't they? Well, no, not the CGIs. You know, like those those little clip scenes with the with uh, um, Baelish in the suit. You know, walking around Griffith right. Park being filmed. Those were the same ones. But a lot of times they would put the CGI thing into the background where the witnesses were, uh, where they actually had encountered the Sasquatch. Um, you know, throwing rocks or doing this behaviors right. and that sort of thing. 
Um, but gosh, I don't know, uh, Rick, uh, I, th- I think you're asking us questions that are above our pay grade, really. Well, now, now here, here's from our perspective, I guess. Um, when we were done doing the, um, the recreation or the, uh, um, the interview on site, um, what, what they would do is the camera guys would take the witness away and they would do some re like, okay, you said you were scared, act scared here, you know, that sort of thing, kind of walk them through their own story again. And then they would take plates is what they called them, where they would just film the background with nothing in it, with no people in it or anything like that. And then the CGI guys, um, the CGI company, whoever they hired would go in and put kind of paint the Bigfoot digitally into the background. So uh, I, I guess that's how they were chosen is that they, we actually chose the real background where the actual encounter happened whenever possible, unless, of course, we weren't able to go to the location and we had to interview the witness elsewhere. So then we, they would actually take the actual location whenever possible, film that, and then paint the Bigfoot in there digitally doing what the witness said. I don't know how much that costs. I mean, all that sort of stuff is kind of, uh, like I said, above our pay grade. It's all production stuff. Well, I know that the um, cost dropped a lot during the from when the first episode to the last episode. CJ cost dropped like by seventy percent or something. That's probably just because the technology had advanced or something. Or what do you think? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the CGI. A lot of times they. Uh, we would be gone. They'd, like we'd be taking lunch or going somewhere else. They'd stay behind with one of the cameramen and uh, one of the crew and the crew member would tr- try to act out the Bigfoot where it was under the direction of the witness and then they'd animate over top of that person. So paint directly over the top of the filmed person. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they did it both ways. Yeah, because I remember seeing a couple times where they just did a plate where there was nothing there. Right. Maybe that was just for a less behaviorally oriented sightings, like a road crossing or something. All right. I guess we wrap that one up. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess Rick. At the end of the end of the day, we don't know that much about it because that's all post production stuff. Um, and you know, we were probably off filming another episode somewhere while they were working on things like this. So we we had very little, we had no say whatsoever in any of that, and we have very little knowledge about how it uh, was all created. Now, as far as what we think of those, um, the animations, I can't speak for anybody but myself, of course, but when I see them, they always seem to jazz it up a little bit more than it needs to be. Because I guess really at the end of the day, most Sasquatch reports are rather boring, you know, uh, at the end, of the, really, because what, you see it and it looks at you and walks away. Yeah, sometimes they throw rocks, sometimes they scream or do something cool, um, something TV worthy, I suppose. But the vast majority of sightings are like, oh, I saw it, it saw me, it turned and walked away. Um, not exactly the most um, you know riveting monster you can put on television. So those CGI guys, I, I felt always kind of you know played it up a little bit more than perhaps it was needed. Um, and of course, the Sasquatches look pretty good, better than I can draw, that's for sure. Um, but how close they were to what the witness actually saw is is you know beyond the scope of my knowledge. I don't know, but I thought they're pretty okay. I mean, they they certainly did the job. Uh, I'm not sure they accurately depict what Bigfoots are doing because those CGI Bigfoots are always like being all nasty and mean and growling and being scary monster things. And Bigfoots just don't aren't always like that. So, okay, next question is from Dominic uh, Moresmith. Do you think Bigfoots understand the English language? Do they have their own language and speak to each other? Yes and yes. Yeah, see, I don't think they understand English any more than my dog does. Certain words like food or get out of like things they hear over and over and over. Like, well, like yeah, not, yeah, but not fluency, but just understand a few, like a dog. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, does my dog understand the English language? I don't know. I and mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a more complex thing than that. So, so yeah, I don't think that you can. I don't. I don't think you can talk to them in that sort of way. And I know a lot of indigenous cultures say that. Yeah, they they speak our language. Um, so it makes sense that you know people who speak English are going to think that they speak their language too. Um, but I don't know. It seems to me that they could probably pick up some meanings. I guess maybe um, if, like you said, Bobo, if they hear the word enough and there's some sort of reason for them to care. Um, but you know, I don't think they're speaking to one another like in English or anything like that. But can do they have some sort of language and can they speak to each other? I suppose, yeah, I, I'm open to that. I'm not convinced, but I'm open to that. Certainly, Scott Nelson thinks that there's a language going on. He has a, he has yet to crack any of the words, even yes or no. And he told me specifically those are the two words you have to figure out first before you figure out anything else in any unknown language. Um, I'm open to that possibility. Um, and I would be very interested if, oh, well, of course it'd be fascinating if this was, if, if this was found to be true in some sort of way that they do in fact have their own language and can speak to each other. And they're certainly communicating with one another. I have no doubt about that. Um, and the, this jibber jabber sort of chatter thing that they, that they, that they seem to do, um, is probably conveying some sort of information, but I would be really interested, uh, once this is established that, that, yeah, they're talking to each other. I'd be really interested to kind of get into like the syntax and structure of the real, of the language, um, assuming it exists to figure out how complex it is. Um, because I'm, I'm really interested in their, uh, symbolic thought, um, I want to know how deep their symbolic thought goes. And certainly they have some um, sim- uh, symbolic thought because the other apes do. Um, and, and they would have at least that level of cognition um, and quite possibly a little higher cognition as well. I don't think they approach human um, in any way necessarily, but there would be something there. And I'm curious what that something is. I've talked about PhD with a long, a long uh, duration direct observation of a family group and she's fluent in nine languages phd linguist and she said absolutely phenome structured the whole every element of language was there I, but that that kind of demands knowing what they're saying to show that though i think you know there I might be repeated like, phonemes um which might suggest words that's what scott nelson has done you know uh, but uh but what does that mean and we don't know and until we crack that code we just don't know to me, it's more of a, it's kind of a matter of that question of, do Bigfoot, does Bigfoot exist? There's no question they exist. It's a matter of what are they? To me, it's, there's no question they can communicate some type of language. The question is how much and to what extent, like in how in depth. Yeah, and how sophisticated it would be. You know, and really, if we were to start plumbing those depths, I think one of the interesting things about it would be to see what sort of things matter to them. Um, because, you know, I've, I've given a lot of thought and I've heard a lot of lectures and read some things about, um, looking for alien intelligences. Um, and, and one person said that, you know, if, if you're, if, if somebody is looking for an alien intelligence and they think they're speaking to some extraterrestrial and they're asking about political structures or taxes, well, then that's probably not an alien because we would expect an alien mind to, speak about alien things that we probably couldn't comprehend the importance of or even what the heck they're talking about at all. So, um, And certainly a Sasquatch would have some sort of completely non-human um, subject matter 
to discuss. <laughs> and I think that would be just really, really cool to get inside their head in that sort of way. And language, if assuming that they have some sort of um, language ability, um, that would be really that probably the only way you can get inside their head. I think it's safe to assume they'd be interested in the things that they they show us they're interested in, things that they observe us doing. Like they'd ask us, "What are you doing? Like why are you got like they wouldn't have any idea about us, you know, whatever computer programming, but they'd be like, "Well, how do you guys start a fire? What how did you start that fire? Like what is what's that, you know, and how does a gun work?" You know, I think they'd be interested in the kind of things that they see us doing out in the woods. Yeah, maybe, who knows? Who knows? Fire might be one of those technologies like a computer doing. Like, like I don't know. What's right. that for? I don't need that. It's a bunch of nonsense. Well, that's, the thing, that's the thing about their brain. They didn't have to evolve. Their, like, our brain got bigger and bigger because we were so wimpy and just pathetic. Whereas they're supreme physical beings, master of their environment, master of their domains. I mean, they're the apex predator. There's nothing feeding on them. You know, certainly not an adult Sasquatch. There's nothing messing with them. So, I mean, they didn't have to develop that kind of brain like we did because we were hairless little, wimpy little vulnerable entities. Yeah, yeah, they would have a, they have a completely different set of needs and therefore a completely, assuming that they are speaking to each other, a completely different set of things they care about that they want to talk about. It'd be pretty interesting to get into that, though. Yeah, even, even I mean, I, I'm convinced they have a language, but certainly it's not going to have the amount of words or, you know, their dictionary would probably be like about three or four pages, of, you know, where ours is thousands. Hmm. Now, since you're you're convinced that they have a language of some sort, do you think that the ones in Florida are speaking the same language as the ones in British Columbia? It's just like a different dialect or same dialect, or what are your thoughts on that? Since you are convinced of this, I think that it'd be kind of it would be like human language where there's so many like we have no idea what they're saying. I think it'd be more like Italian and Spanish, that kind of you know like where you you don't have to be a native speaker, you kind of get it, you can get along. Some some sort of like a uh, um, related uh, root language that they they can probably get through. Yeah, yeah. Now would that have something to do with the lack of sophistication in their language? It, since you said that you think their their vocabulary list might be maybe a few pages, um, and therefore the close a little bit closer to the root. Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I'm not a language expert, but just from what I've heard personally in the Sierra sounds and talking to some linguists that you know, studied it. I, I just think they have a language, you know, that they know what they're saying to each other. It's not just jibber jabber. And gibberish is You've actually language. heard this out in the woods too, right? You've heard that chatter yeah, back and forth. Totally. Yeah. I have not heard that yet. I'm kind of looking forward to hearing that at some point, but, uh, Oh, it's crazy. It's just like, you can't, you're in shock. It, it was just as shocking as the sighting, if not more for me. Hmm. Well, yeah, we have a lot, a lot of weights to be uh, discovered here. You know, I think it's entirely possible. So uh, it's just one of those things we get to look forward to after academic uh, acceptance of the species, I suppose, you know? Yeah. And I'm just looking at these questions we got coming up. There's, these are a lot of great questions. Well, why don't you do the next one for us, Bubs? Paul Ray, okay. Would Bobo submit to an amorous Bigfoot if he was able to obtain a DNA sample? Sorry, I have to have a little too much Kentucky bourbon. Love you guys. Hmm. I would. Totally. Whatever, whatever it took. I mean, I wouldn't like it, but I'd do it. You got to do it well, for How the do team. you know? How do you know you wouldn't like it? What if it's just a little snuggle, you know? Oh, that's nothing. I, I'd do that even without science. <laughs> Well, I guess that's what a little bit too much Kentucky bourbon will do. Well, it would definitely help. I'd be much more likely to get a DNA sample if I could have the whiskey. Yeah, like give Boba some of that Kentucky bourbon. Yeah, that is more likely to happen for sure. 
<laughs> but I do put out on the first date, so it probably wouldn't take too long. <laughs> All right. All right. Next one. Here's a question from Anthony Deutschman. Do you consider there is a correlation between Sasquatch demeanor, like level of aggression, towards humans displayed in interactions and the level of firearm utilization? For example, do Sasquatches tend to display more aggressive behaviors to humans than Yowies in Australia, um, where there exists significant firearm controls? Oh, so basically, are, does the behavior of Sasquatches, is there any correlation be, between the behavior of Sasquatches and the presence of firearms, like in the United States, versus, like, say, Australia, where the Yowies, you know, they don't have a lot of guns in Australia. Um, so is there a correlation? Um, I don't know. That's a great question, and it's just kind of more uh, just impressions. There's no study done on it, but, I mean, I've paid attention to that. I'm sure you have, too, in reports. In Australia, there's way less guns, and they get a lot of aggressive encounters. The Yowie seems to be more aggressive than the Sasquatch on average from my studies and research. But uh, there's got to be some some correlation. I mean, maybe they, they, might, they, they might be less uh, antagonistic. Like, you know, there's a lot of firearms like stay away, but... We all know about the hunters and hunting camps and hunters walking through the woods. They get harassed, I think, more than the average person does, for sure. And think about all the sighting reports that come out of shooting ranges and quarries and places like that. Um, that's what makes me kind of doubt things. And sir, sir, I would think that any Sasquatch that has reached maturity, which is probably about 10 years for them, I'm guessing, based on all the other ape species, of course. Um, so a 10-year-old Sasquatch who's probably physically mature or, or right about there, um, at that point... There's a pretty reasonable chance that that particular Sasquatch has seen a hunter at some point with a with a gun, possibly even killing a deer. And so th I think that those Sasquatches would probably realize, like, wait, those guys are going after our herd, you know, like like that's our food, and he's taking it as well. So maybe they would learn that, like, oh man, that's no good. Whatever these, you know camouflaged, you know, gun-toting folks in the woods are doing, it's kind of affecting us. Um, but at the same time, there's so many sighting reports at quarries and, and shooting ranges and whatnot that if the guns were really a big deterrent, why would a Sasquatch hang out there? That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, for um, Sierra Sounds, they would call the Sasquatch in by shooting off guns. Oh yeah, or what about the uh, um, that that thing, the siege at uh, Hanobi? That yeah, yeah, yeah that uh, that Powell wrote about, and they kind of figured out like, oh yeah, the the Sasquatches used guns, gunfire as a dinner bell, because when that happened, there was very often a wounded deer running through the woods that was really easy to catch. Totally, I, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, so I think that there's a there is probably some correlation. I think that the savvy Sasquatches have figured out that wounded deer. You know, just tastes just as good as the, the unwounded deer. <laughs> and yeah, why not let the humans do half the work? Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida in Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Okay, the next question is from Colton Palmer. Hey, Colton, I recognize that name. 
How often are Bigfoot seen in cities or within the city limits, if at all? I think more than people realize. I know when you talk to like Tyler Bounds up in Washington, a lot of reports, those guys, are, the BFR up in Washington has done a lot of research. And he's he's pointed out to me places where they've seen Sasquatch, like, where they found tracks. And they'll go like a mile, a mile into the city along a big creek, creekways at night and burrow way in that people would have no clue and would be shocked if they knew how far into the city limits they got. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what Tom Powell says, is that you only own your property during the day. Um, at night, they have free reign. And off the top of my head, I'm, I'm of course, here at the museum today, the NBC. But uh, off the top of my head, I know that um, there's been si- there have been sightings over um, on Bluff Road, um, right? That's, that's pretty much in the city of Sandy. Um, Tickle Creek on the other side of Sandy got a bunch of stuff out there from the 1980s and early 1990s. Um, there was a sighting across Highway 26 from where the museum is in 1990 and 1991, and that's kind of it's kind of rural, and especially back then, that was 30 years ago after all. Um, but uh, Troutdale has sightings and sound reports that uh, leak out of there occasionally over by that dog park and um, over by the Sandy River. Yeah, so wherever wilderness comes right up against um, suburbia or you know whatever happens to be there, you can expect that there could be sighting reports there. Um, I don't see any reason why not. Sasquatches don't care. Yeah, some of those, uh, like, you know, like when you got lots that are like an acre, two acres, five acre lots, it's no surprise to see them in those kind of, in, in that kind of zone. But we get into those neighborhoods with like 15, I mean, like, you know, like 7,500 square foot lots, 10,000 square foot lots, or even smaller, and they're seen like two, three blocks into there. That's what blows my mind when they're, like, they're in dense neighborhoods going through backyards. No, Helen, Georgia is another good example. Um, there have been, I've, I've heard at least that there have been sighting reports of them going through the dumpsters um, in the alleys because, you know, the businesses in Helen, this cute little um, tourist town, uh, the businesses are pushed up against the hillsides. And then, you know, the alleys behind them sometimes have apparently have Bigfoots walking through them, raiding the dumpsters. Um, and those, uh, the, you know, when you're a couple blocks in and there's a Sasquatch there, and uh, a lot of times those are new developments. And I think that's important as well because a lot of these long-term witness um, sighting reports um, come from properties and, uh, you know, a house that was newly built. So the the humans are intruding on the Sasquatch territory and they build a house and the Bigfoots keep coming around for a while. And uh, I think a lot of these new kind of subdivisions um, are a good example of that. Kind of like in the North Carolina, I think it was North Carolina episode. One of the first ones we filmed were those guys, uh, um, a man and a woman had those muddy footprints run across their cul-de-sac. Oh, yeah. Um, that was br- a brand new housing unit in a fairly you know, rural area um, along the power lines and everything. And that's another good example. I, I think the new housing tracks are the places where you'd probably look for stuff like that. Um, but you know, if their food source is there... And the Sasquatches know about it, and they can continually uh, exploit those food resources, whether, you know, dumpsters or dog food or the stray cats or whatever it is. Um, I think the Sasquatches will probably continually come around. Yeah. And look at the other animals that sneak in. Um, like a couple years ago when I've got, I must, I say a couple, but I'm an old man now. So that's probably like 10 years ago. Um, I remember was we were on the road for finding Bigfoot in the news item, like a local news item from Portland crossed my, my, my news feed about some bear that had made his way down the railroad tracks into like the thirties. Um, when I say the thirties, I mean, 30th or 40th Avenue in Portland. And to give you an idea, like the, the, the place where it certainly came from was 
past 360 something Avenue. Um, so it's a long ways in. It's a long ways in. You know, it was, it was basically in Portland proper and not like the outlying suburbs of Gresham and Troutdale and Fairview and all those places. It made its way miles and miles and miles into Portland proper. Okay, next question then. Um, this one is from John Doe. Oh, I've heard of that guy. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who wants to go out and see a Bigfoot? What sort of terrain would you seek out and what would you do once you get there? That's an in-depth question. I mean, personally, I like to get where, a, where things come together, like there's meadows, marsh, and then real, real nearby, you know, thick cover, and also some kind of topography going up, like uh, especially like rocky buttes and that sort of thing where they come down, where steep terrain meets like a mixed terrain of like forest, woods, and marsh. And to me, that's the best spots. Yeah, you're talking transition zones because it's a wider, yeah. like, where one biome meets another, it's a wider variety of food resources or resources in general, actually. What I, I get this question a fair amount in the museum here when I'm working. And my, my answer is probably the most important thing you can do. There's a couple, here's, here, here's my set of important things. Um, if you want to try to see a Sasquatch, I would recommend going where somebody had seen one before. Um, that seems to be, in my mind at least, probably the number one indicator of the possible presence of Sasquatches in the area is that if there's a, a cluster of reports. And of course, in Sasquatch, um, a cluster could be two reports, two or three reports, because uh, the, the data is so rare. Um, you don't need 30 reports from a two-mile area. You need one or two or three. And if, you, and if you have two or three, my gosh, that's the spot. They're, they're there occasionally um, because the, the data is so lacking. So that's my number one thing. Go where somebody else has seen them before and, um, and go to the extreme. That's what Moneymaker did on the show. I, went, I, was, I was always impressed, actually, because um, Matt is really good at finding Sasquatches. A lot of people love Matt. A lot of people hate Matt. But one thing you can't take away from that guy, no matter what you think of him, is that he's very good at finding Sasquatches. And he would take it to such an extreme. Like he would go into his uh, flats, the, the 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 database for the BFRO, and oh, there's a sighting report at this campground, and he would make sure that he got the same campsite in the campground. And he would do pretty well doing that sort of thing. He would just try to replicate whatever the previous witness did. Um, even down to the same campsite. And I, and I think that's an interesting avenue, and it seemed to work out with Matt pretty well. Um, so again, go where Sasquatches have been seen before and try to do the same thing that the witnesses were doing if you, get, if you could, you know. Um, but I, I think you covered the terrain thing pretty well, Bobes. And as, as far as what you do when you get there, my number one piece of advice for any new Bigfooter is go for another reason. Don't just go for just just to see a Bigfoot or whatever, because you're going to come back as a failure most times, pretty much all the time. But if you go for another reason, like fishing or mushroom hunting or camping with your family or hanging out with friends or hiking or any, you know, stargazing, whatever, go there for another reason. And that way you'll come back successful almost every time. And then occasionally Bigfoots might show up. Um, I think that's probably the most important thing you can do at this point is enjoy yourself agreed definitely if you go there just to see one, you're going to come home pretty disappointed if you go with the goal of hearing one or having some kind of you know maybe hear them walking around do some tree branches and some knocks around your camp that's a realistic goal seeing one that's like a more holy grail you know one in a thousand long shots 
And there's so much other, so many other things to do in the woods besides just sit around and hope to see a Bigfoot. Um, and you know, you look at the people who do see Sasquatches. The number one activity of people who are who see Sasquatches are campers. Um, campers, and then I think drivers, and then hunters. I think I, I would have to go back and look, but I think that's approximately right. Um, so yeah, drive to the woods, get a dash cam. You are just as likely to see one on the road as you are in camp. And if you have a dash cam, you are way more likely to film it than if you had a camera at your side. Go camping, hang out, be interesting, cook some food, get some smells out there, make some noises, laugh, have fun, play music. That's the kind of stuff that brings a Bigfoot in. Children, uh, women singing, interesting sounds that are non-offensive and not threatening. That's the kind of thing you need at camp. Be Be a scene. You know, when we went out and finding Bigfoot, we, you know, when Bobo had the idea of throwing a rave in the woods, well, it's not, it's not the rave. It's certainly not techno music that Sasquatch is like, <laughs> although I could be wrong about that. They might come um, throw rocks at you with that stuff. Yeah, maybe that, exactly. <laughs> I suppose it's the, you know, the, what kind of reaction do you want? But it, it's really just to go out there and be a scene. And if you can do that, if you can be interesting, then you have a really high probability or chance, you know, really high might be a 5% chance, but you have a higher pro- probability of bringing a Sasquatch in and maybe then you can put eyes on it. Yeah. So let's see what we got next here. Hello, fellows. This is Roger Stuckey. I always enjoy your weekly podcast. And I was wondering if you have ever, if you two have ever considered going to Snellgrove Lake, Lake Ontario and do an investigation of the area. Snellgrove Lake, that's the one where uh, a lot of people remember from Legend Meets Science, Dr. Belgium went up there and they oh, Monster Quest, actually. Monster yeah, Quest. Yeah, Monster episode. Quest. Yeah, Monster Quest. They went up there and uh, uh, they put up bear boards, like where they take plywood because the grizzly bears would come and tear the place up. Actually, it was a Bigfoot that tore it up. When you look at the, uh, the the videotape for the insurance claim, it was totally a Bigfoot. There was no claw marks, but things were just ripped and torn. And it was a Bigfoot tore the cabin up. And then Doug was up there fishing, not even doing Bigfoot stuff. And we in the middle of this lake and this, you know, it's marshy all around there, hundreds of miles from anywhere else. They had their encounter. It's a pretty famous encounter. You can check it out. Look, you can actually like uh, rent that episode and see it for yourself on Monster Quest. And it's uh, it's it's a great spot to do some squashing for sure. And I was supposed to go there last year. Dave Paulides um, from Missing 4 and 1 was going to go there for a month. And he was inviting a few different people up there. And I was going to go for like a week or 10 days or something. So I was totally pumped to go, but it got canceled because of the COVID. Yeah, I'd like to go up there, but it's so hard to spend a couple thousand dollars flying up to Ontario when, you know, there's a spot 40 minutes from my door that has right. been producing stuff pretty regularly, you know? And again, if, if I did go to Snellgrove, I'd, I'd love to go with Doug. I mean, Doug's a friend of mine. We both love the fish. It would be one of those things I just mentioned from the previous question. I would go up there to fish. And enjoy myself with a good friend or whatever, and then maybe Bigfoots would show up. But uh, Snellgrove is in the middle of nowhere, man. Once you're there, that's it. Um, so it would be cool. I would love to do it, of course. I'd love to do any Bigfooting anywhere. But it, just, it costs and time and effort. It's just a long ways to go. for Because, you know, there was another Monster Quest episode where they went back the following year. And nothing was going on at all. Um, because the conditions were different. The blueberries had either ripened or they weren't ripe yet. I don't remember which. But yeah, the conditions were a little bit different, and the Bigfoots were not there. All right. Well, let's see. Next question from Mike Gosnell. Um, Question for you both. All the times you have been out looking for Bigfoot, has there been a time you were really scared that you might not come home? 
Just from the drive in or out. Yeah, like there's been pretty sketchy drives, but I'm not not really been. I've never really felt threatened by Sasquatches. Um, I've been scared for unknown reasons, maybe infrasonic reasons. I don't really know, but I, I, not from a. I've never felt physically threatened or any sort of way from a from any animal in the woods, really. Um, but certainly, I've driven to some places that I found myself in some very hairy predicaments. So, yeah, I mean, I've had a few. I've had a few times where I was worried I wouldn't get out, but obviously nothing happened. But they can make you think that. That's for sure. They're masters of intimidation. Yeah, you know, one time that comes into my mind, and it hasn't has nothing to do with the animal necessarily. But I was in the blues. This is about. A handful of years ago, three or four years ago, I went out to a for a solo trip in the blues for three or four or five days or something, and um, a couple of casts came from this one area. Uh, Yellow Jacket is where it was called. Um, there was a cast from Yellow Jacket, and I wanted to go check it out. Um, and been a number a number of other casts from not far away, and I drove this road. And uh, I kept driving, and it was just awesome. And, and eventually, it got dark, and I was at at the very end. I, I might even meet like Yellow Jacket Point. I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to double check the map. But um, I drove up to the top of this little pinnacle thing, and it was the last hill before it basically dropped off into what I think is the Walla Walla River, and, and probably the Walla Wilderness area. But I'm, I'm not, but definitely the Walla Walla River is below me. And it was dark, and it was windy, and it was howling, and and uh, I drove my jeep up to the top of this hill, and this hill was probably no more than I'm going to say 25 or 30 feet in diameter, um, and because of the t- topography and the the narrow uh, top of the hill I was on, I couldn't see the road, and so I had to do with this turn up on top of this. God, it had to be like 20 or 25 feet now that I'm thinking of it because it was tiny. Um, and I had to do this turn up on there and I couldn't see the road over my hood because it was so small. And so I, all I could see was that I was on top of the world and I could see the, the, the vague shadowy outline of the mountains far far off into the horizon. I could not see where I was driving. I didn't know how close to the ledge I was. Man, that, that even now it kind of raises the hairs on my body. That that was a horrifying and scary thing. Um, trying to do this 30-point turn on this super narrow. God, I can't even, when I say, not, not looking back, not even close to 30, 30 feet. It would, had to be like 20, 25 feet at the most. It was scary. It was horrifying. It was always the driving. Dri- driving is how you're going to kill yourself out there. Or maybe like hypothermia if you get in a bad situation. Sasquatches probably aren't going to get you. Probably. Although, there are certainly stories of these attacks every once in a while. So, who knows? Definitely those narrow, sketchy roads, icy, dark, all that kind of stuff. That's, that's where I've really got the butt puckering really going. Yeah, you were in Bluff Creek just a few weeks ago dealing with some ice as well. Oh, that was that was one of my sketchiest five drives ever squatching. Yeah, anything can go wrong out there. And if it does go wrong, they're not going to find out. They're not going to find you for a long time. So is it my question or your question? Uh, it's yours. Mark Queering, have you ever heard of two Sasquatches imitating other sounds like a chainsaw? I think so. I think I've heard that, actually. Yeah, I think they imitate all kinds of different mechanical sounds and different things. And, oh, you know what I just heard again in the woods, Cliff, was that and we were way out in a roadless area, wilderness area, was the car door slamming in the middle of nowhere. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to bring up with this question. Like, I haven't heard a chainsaw sound or, you know, like a combustion engine sort of sound. Um, well, maybe I have actually, but I've certainly heard car doors slamming where there were certainly no car doors. That's yeah, a I've very that, weird thing to hear. I've heard that, like, it sounds like some kind of metal machinery, then it sounds like some type of machinery tearing a sheet of metal in half, like that screeching high pitch. It sounds way mechanical, like grinding metal sounds. And then it, goes into a scream or a roar or a howl. I've heard that a few times. Flippy and I actually thought we had it really well recorded. We were filming the USA versus Canada Finding Bigfoot episode. We were in the Olympics. We heard that one. like That was awesome sounds that night. And We had four recorders going, and none of them really picked it up that well at all, really. But, man, that night, we thought it was like some old 4x4, four four, like one of those big old 1940s or 50s fire trucks, 4x4s. Four that just would, you know, you'd hear them shifting the gears, grinding. We thought that's what it was at first, and then it just sounded more mechanical and metal ripping, and then it went into this shrieking scream and howls. It was nuts. Yeah, at this point, um, you know, because being a good Bigfooter is really almost as much about asking questions as it is looking for answers, I think. And since I've heard these car door slams, where there are clearly no car doors, and I'm not the only one either, um, numerous people I have spoken to have claimed this as well. Um, you know, I think, okay, well, if maybe Sasquatches are responsible for that. And if they are, does that mean that, I mean, okay, we, we, we've heard that, you know, indigenous people say they're, they're excellent mimics and everybody's heard other Bigfooters say about the 800 pound owl and all this stuff. And we don't, we no, don't really know. Maybe those are Bigfoots, maybe they aren't. But um, are these things like parrots? You know, because I don't know if a lot of our, um, People listening, they may have maybe lived with parrots, and they can parrots imitate all sorts of noises. You know, fire alarms. Um, my parents had a parrot, and I would hear my mother coughing, for example, um, in the parrot. Like, clearly, my mother's voice coming out of the parrot. Um, I've heard stories from people who have been hiking in areas where they had seen Sasquatches previously, and then heard their own voice calling in the woods, which is scary in its own sort of way. Very you know, horror movie hag-like behavior, but um, probably a Bigfoot, I would imagine. Um, I think Sasquatches are that level of mimic. Um, they can imitate non-biological sounds quite effectively. Um, at least that's where I'm at right now. Of course, I don't have a lot of, I don't have any proof at all, and I have a little bit of evidence, I guess, um, if, story, if you count stories as evidence. But, you know, Pretty interesting stuff. Again, just more of this mystery that deserves a closer look, and I'm looking forward to unraveling over time. Amen. Okay, the next question is from Christopher Geckel. If you find Bigfoot around the country, do they sound and act differently? Like, basically, do they have accents is what he's asking. And we've been asking that in the community for a long time. But the recordings don't seem to bear that out, in my opinion. Yeah, when I, the recordings when I before, from Ohio sound very similar to the recordings anywhere else in the country. When I used to say that, that was before I found out about koi wolves and their vocal range being greater than a coyote or a wolf. When they, the koi wolves' range of vocalizations was so dramatic, like and we all thought that's what we were hearing. We thought they were Sasquatch calls in West Virginia and somewhere north of there, Pennsylvania or somewhere. And, uh, and we're like, man, these these coyotes have. I mean, these we were saying these squatches have you know, like different sounds in the other squashes, other parts of the country. It turned out they were almost certainly koi wolves. So yeah, I haven't figured that out. I don't think there's too much, too much of that. I think it's all pretty standard. I mean, there, I'm sure there's little nuances, differences to them. You know, maybe it's like 
hearing a Scottish person or an American talk, you know, maybe something like that, but same language. Yeah, we may just not have the ears to hear the differences. Um, it's possible, though. It's certainly possible. But frankly, the Ohio howls from Ohio sound just like the ones, you know, from wherever else, uh, Mississippi or British Columbia. They, I mean, to my ears, they sound the same. But maybe my ears aren't nuanced enough to pick up any differences. So uh, right. I think that would be a question um, for somebody who wants to look at the um, – you know, the, 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 the visual aspect of vocalizations on like a, oh, what is that called? The um, pictogram? Oh, spectrograph. Spectrogram. Yeah, that'd be someone, uh, that'd be a question to ask somebody like Dave Ellis or somebody like that who's spent a lot of time with the spectrographs of vocalizations. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. This is from Kevin Taylor. If you could pick anywhere to squatch, where would you where would your dream location be and who would be on your hand-picked dream team of squatchers to join you? Well, my dream team would be I wouldn't even really be squatchers. I'd probably want to get like the best Na- National Geographic, you know, wildlife cameraman that is very experienced with, you know, hidden cameras and all that sort of thing and then uh like some world-class trackers, you know, guys you never heard about. That but you know that are famous in the hunting world that are just you know guys that just have that sixth and seventh sense of about animals and what's going on in the woods. Then I'd bring Cliff for sure. But um, that's very kind of you. Well, they, they did specify squatchers. Of, of squatchers, it'd be like I guess Cliff, Tom Shea, Moneymaker, and then God, just a really good outdoorsman, and then a really good whoever's the best at. The uh, tech, the technology, the photos, and that which could be Doug Hydecheck. I mean, that guy has invented different camera systems. Um, someone like that. And where would you go, Bobo? Probably eastern, eastern Tennessee. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, just because yeah, it's I easy to. I mean, you could go to somewhere like outside of Bella Coola, uh, BC, or somewhere way remote. But then you're talking about all the hassle of that. I mean, if you have an unlimited budget, like float planes and helicopters and that sort of stuff i mean that's a different thing but like realistically like something we could afford i'd say east tennessee yeah yeah that sounds about right east tennessee's is probably good as anywhere to go you know i I, i'm still gonna go towards uh the west coast of uh, vancouver island though because i i've yet to i've yet to go there and I would really like to. I, I, that's part of the mystique for me is I've not been there yet. You know, somewhere on maybe Tofino or somewhere like that. Um, and I guess who would I pick? Well, because I, I would definitely bring you, Bobo, because you're a lot of I – mean, you're one of my best friends and we've had so many neat adventures out there and I'd want to share it with, some, with one of my friends like that. Yeah, that would just be – that would be a social thing like for getting results – yeah, you know, well, you know, remember what I said though earlier in the earlier question is that I think it is important to go out there with other things to do, and being social is part of that. Um, right. And I think that's part of getting results as well. Um, I would I would want to go out there with somebody uh, highly trained in forensic evidence gathering of some sort, um, and maybe even with a mobile lab. How cool would that be? Like some sort of and the ability to spot lab. the subtle things. Yeah, yeah. I think Tom Shea was an excellent choice for that. He's an excellent tracker. Um, one of the best I've been in the woods with, at least. You know, I that one day you and I spent what three hours, two or three hours with the guy. I learned so much just by being out there. Yeah, me too. Um, 
you know, it was, but you know, speaking to that, I'm going to go out with Tom Shea actually next week. I get to spend a day at, with him out in Kentucky. So I'm kind of looking Dude, forward to that. It's just I'm one so, day. Oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, it's going to, it's going to be good. And I'll, I'll give a report next week after I do so, of course. But, um, you know, considering how much I learned from just a couple hours in the woods with Tom, I'm looking forward to going overnight and seeing what they're up to and what kind of thing they do over there. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll be back on Tuesday from, from that. But yeah, dream team of Squatchers. I sure would like, again, I, it kind of goes back to who would, who would I would like to meet that I have not met. Maybe over uh, like the early days are just a little bit more romanticized than they should be as far as uh, Bigfoot lore goes. But um, Bob Titmus yeah, comes back to mind. Titmus. Yeah, because he spent a lot of time in BC. And since I did say that was my choice of locations, I think he'd be an excellent choice for that. Um, and and yeah, Roger, I mean Roger being a small chimneyist athletic guy, so, I mean he's already proven what he can do. So you got to consider Roger Patterson. Oh, you got to consider him for sure. And he, I think uh, his, um, uh, his overactive nature, I think, did a lot for for Roger as well. You know, Roger, he doesn't get credit for everything he did. He was a heck of a bigfooter before the film. People don't give him yeah. that credit. He worked his ass off to get that film, and he didn't even know the film was the goal at the time. Yeah, he's the first person to ever, um, to my knowledge at least, he's the first person to ever do call blasting. Yeah. A lot of people think that was invented in the 90s, and it was not. Roger did it in the 60s. He uh, built Early a 60s. tower. Yeah, he built a tower on his property and with a loudspeaker and he'd blast vocalizations to try to get recordings of them. I so wanted to get that old... Uh speaker you see how cool it had it all painted up oh my god it'd be amazing that'd be that'd be the that'd be the centerpiece of your museum for sure yeah we did get a bunch of new patterson stuff in uh recently um we have, I, have a, I have an auto i have an autograph from roger patterson oh cool really cool i've never seen that before yeah a guy kevin llewellyn a, a solid bigfooter in his own right out in spokane washington he uh was in the spokane coliseum when roger gave his presentation um, to uh, uh, yeah, with a film in what probably early 1968 when Roger was on tour. And by the way, I think Dr. Meldrum was in the same presentation as a small boy um, in Spokane. Uh, but yeah, he got to meet Roger afterwards, and he got his autograph. Dude, so, I had a, um, and, I had a signed uh, Roger book. The oh my gosh, yeah, years and years ago, it was I got it for like four dollars or something in a bookstore. What happened? And it was to signed. It? That was probably 30 years ago, and it just kind of fell apart and disappeared. Just disappeared, yeah. It was engulfed. Yeah, those, books, that, those books weren't bound very well. I've had, I've had a bunch of those different books, and the first ones I got all fell apart. And I'd kind of keep them together for a while, but then, they'd, you know, pages would fall out and whatever. just kind of got destroyed. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the next question comes from Barry North. How do people who have had close encounters rate the appearance of Patty in the Patterson-Gimlin film? Is it a yes, that's what I saw, or no, nothing like that? Uh, it's hard to put a percentage on it, but there's a lot of, like, people get real excited, that's it, that's what I saw, you know, or they, they usually say a uh, little bit maybe narrower-hipped and broader shoulder if it's a male, but a lot of them are like, that's exactly what I saw. But then you get down to the south and southeast and, People report, they say, no, it didn't look like that so much. 
Yeah, and you, well, something that you have to consider is that you know Sasquatches are not mice. You know, mice have huge litters and they breed all the time, um, and that's be- and that makes all the mice kind of look the same. Um, but Sasquatches are a long-lived species, and they probably don't you know breed like 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 mice do. You know, they probably have a one or two offspring every few years or so at the most. Um, so the, a, a low birth rate is what I'm saying here, and that's kind of the 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 necessary recipe for a wide genetic diversity. So Sasquatches don't really look like each other, you know, any more than the other ape species do. And if you think all gorillas or all chimpanzees look the same, you are sadly misinformed. Um, they are distinct individuals that are easily discernible from one another. Just just look it up on the internet. There's wonderful posters um, and, and graphics that are available out there with dozens of chimpanzees and other apes and what are on the same page. And you can see how different they are as individuals. And Sasquatches would be expected to be very similar. Um, and, and so not all Sasquatches do look the same. And in fact, very they don't look the same as one another. Um, so do they look the same as Patty? Well, they're going to be re- kind of like it, depending on how far away the person saw the Sasquatch from. And it's going to move kind of like that. Well, maybe the, the one that I think I saw didn't really move like Patty. Um, so I don't know. Those are my thoughts on it. Yeah. But I've certainly had people say, oh, no, that's exactly what I saw. I'd say 50 to 65 percent of people I've talked to that I've questioned about the Patty angle that said, yeah, that, that's 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 real. Well, the, the, They'll often say if it's real or not. Yes, that's real. That's that's totally real. That's what I saw. They'll say that they'll say that they'll authenticate the PG film. Yeah. This is from Nolan Gastner. My question is for Cliff. Were you more excited or scared when you in the yard were clapping back and forth in the Australia expedition? And I can answer that. He was way more excited. He wasn't scared at all. It was all excitement. That's actually true. Yeah, I was out of my mind with excitement because it was one of those rare times on Finding Bigfoot where I was completely alone. Um, I don't know. I don't remember how they pieced it all together, the cut. But at the end of the day, I think I was out with Renee that night. Um, and Renee and I wanted to get closer to the river and they let me loose. They, they, don't, they don't often let me loose. And I was a few hundred yards away from the team, the camera and Renee and the producers. And I was completely alone in there um, and when all that stuff was happening. And of course, now when you look at the the final cut, the final episode, um, they they cut in the original um, footage of me interacting with that thing, clapping at me or whatever it was doing. Um, and then they had to go had to go film a recreation so it could be seen from another perspective. I want to make that clear because I'll, I'll always tell you the truth. So when you see that stuff happening on my uh, backpack camera. That's it happening in real time. Now, I just said I was alone, so that's the only camera that was there. So when you see me from 10 feet away interacting, that's a reenactment of it happening just moments after it happened. Yeah, the backpack stuff got the real footage as it was happening. Because again, I was completely alone at that point. There were no camera people with us, with, with me. They were with Renee, a few, and Renee and Chad, I think, was on the team, a few hundred yards away. So that, that I was out of my mind with excitement because I went there with the question, are these basically Bigfoot? Like, are these Yowies essentially Sasquatches? And um, I, I, I felt I was getting some sort of answer at that point because that's the kind of behavior I would kind of expect from a Sasquatch. 
So I, I felt pretty good about that. Um, I guess the real test was what happened in the next five minutes um, if I was going to be killed and eaten by one of these things, as so many Australian stories have them doing. It's like these cannibals and monsters and stuff. And, and I just don't buy it. I don't think that these things are that much more aggressive. I think that the people down there um, are concerned about their safety. Okay, the next question is from um, Chris Quintero. What do you think would be a bigger story, confirmation of intelligent alien life or confirmation of Sasquatch? Well, the intelligent alien life, they just came out with some stuff, you know, the favor Navy video, the Tic Tac video and all that, and people didn't seem to care too much. Yeah, it's so disappointing. Like, I'm so disappointed in our species at this point. Like, and of course, the scientists are saying, well, you know, just because we see these UFOs does not mean that there's intelligent life and whatever out there. I said, well, if, if, if the technology doesn't seem to be something that is coming from humans, what other option is there? Um, statistically, it seems obvious that there would be, but it seems like there's, there's actually evidence at this point, and humans don't care. I, I just can't believe. I'm so vastly disappointed in our own species and our own lack of, uh, of curiosity and initiative to get tackle these sort of things. And just once again, humans have let me down. But if that doesn't shake the tree a bit, I don't see why the discovery of a, of a perfectly normal animal would. You know, Bigfoot, Bigfoot's a big deal, of course. Everybody knows about Bigfoot. But, uh, you know, everybody knows about aliens, too. And nobody seems to care that that's happening. So, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I would like to think not, that would, not, would but be. But you compare the, the Tic Tac video to the PG film, it's not even comparable. I mean, the Tic Tac video, people have, you know, different theories, this and that. Because it's not that impressive of footage compared to what I've seen myself with my own eyes, UFO-wise. I mean, if, they, if people saw what I saw a couple of times, it'd be... A whole different deal but the video they released was so weak compared and we know they have even senator harry reed and some of the other people said we have way better footage you know that's just what they, they, they let out. what they let out was pretty weak really well what about these things that are like apparently cruising around under the ocean's surface at you ridiculous know, speeds that video is supposed to be like the best one where it comes up out of the water yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I have I, I I have so little faith left in humanity at this point. I have a feeling that the discovery of intelligent alien life or the confirmation of Sasquatch isn't going to do much for anybody. You know, they're still going to be worrying about you know Botox and and like superficial nonsense. You know, like how good your makeup looks or you know like I, I don't know whatever people care about because I'm I don't know what people care about nowadays. <laughs> right. Uh, so we got the last one here. If you can make a Sasquatch themed video, this is okay. Next question and final questions from Hunter L. If you could make a Sasquatch themed video game, what would the objective be? How would you guys go about a Squatch game? I was actually in talk with with uh, what's those guys? Um, SE SE computer games or something like that. I don't, I don't play video games, but this is about eight years ago. And big Finding Big was really popping. They contacted me about doing a video game and. It just didn't go anywhere because the whole thing involved either Bigfoot killing people or us killing Bigfoots was the goal. It was all all that was how to kill a Bigfoot or a Bigfoot kill humans, and I just didn't want to be part of that. Hmm. Yeah, well, I do play video games. I enjoy them. And um, I've thought about uh, what a cool video game would be with a Sasquatch. And by the way, there is a video game out there where um, you are a proto-hominid and you get to evolve and that's how you go up levels and whatever else. And you develop tools and, you know, stone tools and, 
you know, that fire eventually and all that sort of thing. Um, was it called Humanity? I think the name of the game is. I haven't played it though. It looks pretty good. It looks pretty fun because you actually do get to play kind of like a Bigfoot thing. But a specifically Bigfoot game, um, I would play as the Sasquatch. Um, I think that would be the coolest game I can imagine. And I've certainly thought about this a bit. And any video game developers out there, shoot me, shoot me an email. I'll help you out. Um, North American Bigfoot at gmail.com. But um, I would play, I would want to play as a Sasquatch and you start off as an infant and then you develop your, uh, your abilities as you go on. And of course it is a video game and a fantastic world and all that sort of thing. So I would not limit myself to the stuff that Bigfoots can do. I would, uh, expand my repertoire at higher levels of Bigfootery into things that Bigfoots are reported to do, but Cliff personally doesn't think they do like mind speak, um, like, like that kind of thing. Uh, like the, the the more the more spooky sort of uh, paranormal abilities that so many people attribute to Sasquatches. Um, why not do that in a video game? I think that's an appropriate venue for it. Some fantastical world that is not real. Um, so, like mind speak might be one of these abilities that you get as you level up, go through the the level trees or whatever those things are called. Uh, maybe zipping in and out of portals. You know, but at first you start off with with um, a, a higher senses and good speed and uh, ability to camouflage yourself. Um, and th- these are all like skills that you would uh, acquire through various leveling um, and then uh, move on into infrasound and uh, night vision and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And the whole point is to avoid people like us, to avoid Bigfooters, to avoid campers, to, and to feed yourself essentially like, like the goal of every Bigfoot, you know, is to take in more calories than you expend and not be seen. And I, I think that would be interesting. And, and maybe like you would, if you hang out too much by around, hang out around a town too much, maybe those people in town start publishing newspaper reports about it, you know, and that kind of thing. And then, oh, it's time to get to, to exploit a new area, for example. And I think there's so much that we could, can be done with this particular, uh, um, model, I guess, with this particular game idea that uh, I think we're kind of missing out at this point. So that, that's my thought on the video game Sasquatch thing. So I think it'd be cool. I'd play it. Yeah, I guess I would if it was that. Yeah, how cool would that be? You get to play as the Bigfoot and you grow up and maybe your whole point is to die, you know, die a natural death as opposed to being shot at the end <laughs> of your life. You know? That's not how you win, die a natural death. Yeah, yeah, that's how you win. Is you die a natural death. That's how all of us win, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> In this weird virtual reality video game we're all playing at this very exact moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we wrapped up another Q&A session for the month. Yeah, that was fun. Again, I enjoy these. I, I really do enjoy these, and I, I hope our listeners do too. Um, and feel free to submit your questions. I, I, apparently, we have enough for another whole episode for December already, but submit more questions to us. And if you can go to our website, bigfootandbeyondpodcast.com, and just hit the contact button, uh, and then you can send an email to us, uh, and we'll choose the questions that we like, and we'll ignore the ones we don't, and maybe you'll be read on the air. It's fun for us, and hopefully you guys like it too. So keep the questions coming in, guys. Thank you so much. Or- or if you've had a sighting you want to tell us about, any encounters, we'd like to hear about that also. Oh, yeah. At the very least, we'll add them to the database, and maybe we'll even invite you on to be a guest on Bigfoot and Beyond here with us. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't have to be a Bigfoot. I mean, we love Bigfoot stuff, but any weird weird paranormal, cryptozoological, whatever kind of weirdness you got out there, experiences, we'd like to hear it. Nothing's too weird for us. 
Hell no way. Cool, folks. Well, thanks again. And thanks for those questions, everyone. We appreciate the participation. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 